Well, hey, please open your Bibles to Luke chapter 2. That's where we're going to be today. And, and uh, we are continuing just this uh, theme, Christmas at New Life. And, and uh, if, you, if this is your very first time with us ever, we're just glad you're here. We are examining together what is probably the most familiar story in the world, celebrated around the globe every Christmas time, and that is the birth of Jesus. And while you're finding Luke 2, let me just remind you that we have five Christmas Eve services coming up on Friday. They start as early as 11 o'clock in the morning. And I just got to tell you, um, every year the staff recommends that we move this up earlier in the day. And I remember, because to me, I think Christmas Eve service is late at night, right? And, and so we've been, the last couple of years, moving it up. And, our, and, and the people that come to the earlier ones just blow us away every year. So I remember when the staff said, hey, let's, let's do it at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. I said, no one's going to come at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. Pack the house out. And we moved it up earlier, and now they're like, let's do one in the morning. I'm like, no one's going to come in the morning, but I've learned my lesson not to say that. And I got to thinking, people who come to Christmas Eve service at 11 o'clock in the morning have got to be those people that say, let's get this over with. <laughs> we got things to do. Or I'd imagine some of you are like, I got so much cooking to do, the kids are coming over, let's go. I, I don't know, I'm teasing, but we're, we're starting at 11 o'clock in the morning, and um, you come whenever you want. We got five in a row, and those of you that are still watching online, we're so glad you're watching online. We have an eight o'clock online only Christmas Eve service this year that uh, if you're not quite comfortable being with people yet, just come be a part of that eight o'clock, we'd love to have you. But I hope you're, you'll make plans to be here either it's 11 in the morning or all the way into the, the late afternoon, evening time, whatever it is, we it's going to be special. It's a candlelight service for the whole family, and uh, you will not want to miss it. It's going to be awesome. Now, today, though, we are, are looking at this very familiar story of Jesus' birth, and I've shared with you that the temptation is that when you come to parts of the Bible that are very familiar, just to kind of skip over it. It's like, oh, I know this story. And, and I just warning you, that's usually the time if you find yourself, it's like, I'm going to skip this, don't skip it, because God's got something for you to see. And it's very easy to come to the story of Jesus in Luke 2 and say, I already know this. I've known this since I was a kid. I'm just going to skip over these details. I promise you there's things that I believe God wants you to see with fresh eyes this Christmas with fresh meaning and fresh insight. And that's what I hope that these sermons have been doing. It just takes a fresh look at the people, the places, and the circumstances surrounding the birth of Jesus. Like we started with Mary and Joseph. From the moment that she found out in Nazareth that she's going to be a mom all the way to the birth of Jesus in Bethlehem, this is the story that uh, I hope is going to come alive again in a brand new way. Now, so far, if you've been with us to these last few sermons, we start with Joseph and Mary, and uh, the angel came to her and said, you're going to be um, a mother, and she's like, how in the world is this going to happen? I've never done anything to put me in that situation for me to be a mom, and the angel said to her, do you remember his very important words? He says, nothing is impossible with God. Nothing's impossible with God. And that's a wonderful reminder because I would imagine some of us are coming in to this Christmas season with some impossible things on your mind. That's never gonna change. This can't get better. Um, that will never happen. I, I'm here to tell you, we're, we're studying about a lady that uh, the angel said, nothing is impossible with God, and I believe that's something we should take to heart today. Mary, after she finds out, she goes to see her relative, Elizabeth, and uh, Elizabeth was quite a bit older. Was she a, a great aunt, an older cousin? We don't really know. Somebody very special. And, and you might remember Elizabeth has a miraculous pregnancy too, and she's carrying inside of her who? John the Baptist. And when, and when Mary comes and, and John the Baptist leaps inside of her womb, she starts talking about how blessed they all are. Mary, you're blessed. I'm blessed. We're all blessed. And we saw that 
the description of being blessed has nothing to do with our descriptions today. Usually being blessed means, uh, well, stuff I can look at, count, hold, deposit, pile. That's what usually we call blessings, but not Mary, not Elizabeth. They were blessed, why? Because they got to be a part of God's plan. And friends, that right there is the true heart of what blessings from God is. I'm a part of God's family. I get to be a part of his plan. He's working in my life. I know for a fact that the grave is not the end. The grave is just the beginning of true blessing. There's some great insight in here for us as winter this Christmas season. What does it mean to be truly blessed? Now today we're gonna look at the, the events and people's circumstances surrounding the actual birth of Jesus. And it happened in the town of Bethlehem. And if you were to travel to Bethlehem today, just out of curiosity, how many have been to the Holy Land, been to Bethlehem before? All right, we got a few people. But I'll tell you when, you, when you are walking in the footsteps of Jesus over there, the Bible kind of becomes full color. It kind of, the Bible kind of goes into HD mode, if you will, when you've actually been there. But if you go to, to Bethlehem on any Holy Land tour, uh, the birthplace of Jesus, you're gonna find there a church called the Church of the Nativity. And it is believed that this church is built right on top of the exact spot where Jesus is born. And um, so like I said, no Holy Land trip would be complete without visiting this church. Um, is this built over the exact spot that Jesus was born? I don't know if we could ever say for sure, but we know that Bethlehem was not a big place back then, and so there's not too many places it could have happened. It kind of makes sense that this church is built over this site. I can tell you that that um, in um, Christians from almost the very beginning of the church has been coming to this exact spot where this church is to pay honor to the birthplace of Christ. We know around 135 A.D., we know that the Emperor Hadrian had a temple built right here on this site to Adonis as a way to discourage Christians from coming here. So we know that around 135 AD, you know, about 100 years after Jesus, Christians were honoring this place as the birthplace of Jesus. Well, if you know your history a little bit, um, Christianity was persecuted heavily during this time. The first couple of hundred years of the church, the Christians were being dragged off into the Colosseums and fed to lions for sports, uh, for sport. But in, in uh, 325 AD, um, or 326 AD, Emperor Constantine kind of started believing all this stuff. To what level, that's been debated, but he decided that Christianity should not be persecuted any longer. And so he legalized Christianity. It changed the whole landscape of the church, actually. And he built a church right here in Bethlehem on this exact spot to honor the birthplace of Jesus, because that's where everybody said it was. Now, that church that he built would get destroyed by Justinian, and 300 years later, um, Justin would build a new church, and that's the church that sits here today. And I'll tell you, it's kind of a trip to walk inside of of a building that's been standing there since the 6th century. How many places can you go to in the world and say, Christians have been coming here for a long time. It's, 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 a, it's, it's a pretty awesome experience. You, not to make this just a history lesson, but I'm kind of a history nerd, but you know, when you walk into this church, they, you know, this, this church here, the 6th century church, was built on top of the foundation of Constantine's church. And they have places in the floor that these big doors open up and you can look down and see the original floor that Constantine had laid down and there's these beautiful mosaic floors. I mean, it's awesome. Well, this church here is built on top of, of, of a cave system, if you will. And when you go into this church, you're gonna go down some stairs and you're gonna go into what is called the cave of the nativity. And it is believed that this is the exact place that, that Jesus was, was born. I've got a picture of it for you um, underneath this church. 
Um, you go down here, and it's, it's kind of beautifully adorned. There it is. And um, this is the cave of nativity. You can tell you're underground in this cave system. And off to the side, there's an area where it's believed that the manger was. And, and, um, and now on the floor, there is a star on the floor. And they believe that this star marks the exact spot that Jesus was born. Now, over the years, they have adorned this thing. They have decorated. They've laid a beautiful marble floor over it. You can kind of look down into the hole there and see, you know, the rock underneath. But, but uh, this, is, this is quite a special place. And, like, we know that, man, almost since the beginning of the church, Christians have been coming to this spot to remember Christ, Christ's birth. Some of you are probably wondering right now, and it's okay if you are, you're going, um, I thought the song said that Jesus was born in a barn. Anybody wondering like that? Like, like where's the barn? I, I thought that the, the, there's a barn and, and animals and, and, and where is all that? And we kind of have this idea because of, uh, you know, Christmas cards and cartoons and movies and, and uh, the, uh, all the stuff. We kind of have this idea that Mary and Joseph strolled into Bethlehem and they're like, you know, uh, what hotel? Well, there's the Bethlehem Marriott. Let's try that over there. And uh, they found out that the Bethlehem Marriott, nicest hotel in town, they didn't have any rooms. And so, but there's this really nice um, hotel manager. And he said, you know, I've got a barn out back. You want to you wanna stay in my barn? And that's where I keep all my animals. And that's kind of the impression we get of, of the Christmas story. That's what the song says. That's what we sing. Our, our nativity, sitting on the mantle at home, that is what it looks like. But I, I'm going to come back to this, and you're always going to hear me say this. Uh, as long as I have air in my lungs, this is what I'm going to always challenge you to do. What does the Bible say actually happened? Because that's really our source of authority, and that's what I want to look at today. Luke chapter 2, you got it open? Let's look at verse 4. Here's what happened. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. Do you remember why Joseph and Mary had to go to Bethlehem to begin with? The Romans ruled everything. They ruled it very strong-handedly. And if they say you do something, you have to do it. And they decided that we're going to take a census of all the land, which required anybody um, to, to travel, in their home, all the Jews to travel to their hometown to register. They didn't have a choice in this. It's not like, hey, we'll get around to that next year. It was, it was like, you go. And it was probably for the purposes of taxes, most likely. So they didn't have a choice. They, they travel there to, to register because that is Joseph's hometown. Just to let you know that um, it's about 100 miles from Nazareth to, to Bethlehem, and it would take them about 10 days to travel there. And remember, Mary is every bit of nine months pregnant. Can you, can you imagine how that conversation went? Hey, we got this letter in the mail, honey. We got to go to Bethlehem. And she's like, Bethlehem, what? And, and uh, I remember when our son Brock was born, he was our January baby. And I'm sure our doctor told a lot of you the same thing. Hey, your last trimester, don't travel far from home. Did you get that advice from your doctor? Hey, don't go far from home. Stay close. If you have a problem, you're close to the hospital and all that stuff. Um, um, and so that, that year, he was, Brock was born in January. We didn't travel for Christmas. And, and we had a very quiet Christmas at home. We didn't see family and because we we're following doctor's orders. Now, here's Mary, nine months pregnant. And and she's going to have to get on a donkey and ride it for 10 days. How's that sound, ladies? Good? No, it doesn't. This is Mary's reality. She's got to go with, with, with Joseph. 
Um, look at verse 6. While they were there, in other words, so they made it. They made the trip. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. And she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes, placed him in a manger because there was no guest room. Your translation may say there was no room in the inn. There was no guest room available for them. Um, we don't know, friends, we don't know if, if uh, they had been there a week and then she went into labor. We don't know if uh, literally they were riding into town and, and she's having contractions. We don't exactly know. It just says while they were, were there. Um, you, you might be wondering too, why would Joseph and Mary need to find a hotel? If this is Joseph's hometown, you would think that he's got some family there in Bethlehem. He's got some, why would he need to find some place to, to stay? And honestly, unpacking kind of the answer to that question may uh, change the way you've read this text your whole life and understood the events that unfold scripturally in the Bible. This is one of those places where it's actually good to maybe dig a little bit into some original language. Um, just, I think you all know this, many of you, that the English Bible you have in your lap didn't start off as English. It had to be translated to English and, and, and translating the New Text, or the New Testament comes from the Greek language. So what you have is an English translation of the Greek New Testament. And there are sometimes words, just unpacking those original words helps us understand some things. And this is one of those times. In, in Luke's gospel, we, we read the word guest room, or one of your translations might say an inn. And that Greek word is, is kaltalima, kaltalima. And that word literally is translated guest room or room. It's used one other time in the New Testament. It was when Jesus sent his disciples ahead to find a katalima, a room where they could have the Passover meal. It was the upper room. That's the only other time in the New Testament this word is used. And, and so they're, they're, they're looking for a room. Now, now think about this. A, a typical home in Bethlehem had a main living space. We know this just through archaeology and through history. Has a main living space. And then there is a sleeping room. And then... It's not uncommon for a house to have a katalima, a guest room uh, for, for whatever. So when it says that Mary and Joseph were, you know, had the baby, you know, why did they have the baby where they did? Because there was no room in the katalima, the, the guest room. Why was there no room? Well, I don't think it's far stretched to think that Joseph had brothers and sisters. He had family. They all had to travel into Bethlehem. I'd imagine mom and dad's house got full pretty fast, Okay. And so they get there. Maybe they're the last to arrive. I don't know. I don't know how your Christmases are when you get to go with your family. But usually it's crowded houses. And so they get into town and like, hey, mom, hey, dad. Uh, we see that uh, Bill and Sally have the Catalima. And, um, and you guys have your room. And um, Tim and Mary, they're on the couch. Uh, where are we going to stay? I think the house was full. There was, like, there was no room with their family, there was no room to stay. And so where did they go? When we think of stable, um, in this part of the world, you need to think more like uh, maybe the equivalent of a garage, if you will. Um, it's either beside the house or most likely below the house. In this area of Israel, in Bethlehem, there's a, an extensive cave network. And a lot of these houses were built on top of caves. And so you have, um, you know, you might have a house that kind of beneath it to the side of it is an outcropping cave. And it was not uncommon for, for them to have their animals and they would be protected from the elements. They'd be, um, you know, protected from other animals. And, 
And, and think of it like that. That's really more, most scholars agree that Jesus was more born like in a cave than he was like in a typical barn made out of wood like we would think of today through our Americanized version of the birth of Jesus. Uh, to me, it's not hard to visualize houses built on caves living in Bella Vista. There's a lot of caves around here. Just below my house, I've got several caves. These, you know, these kind of goes into the rock and, and comes out. And I've gone down there to look around before. And, and I had a guy knock on my door one time. And, and he said, hey, I'm kind, of a, I'm kind of an archaeologist in this area. And I'd love to go explore the caves down below your, your house. Do you, can I have your permission to go down there? And I'm like, knock yourself out. I don't care. And about an hour later, he comes up. And I'm like, did you find anything? He goes, man, you're not going to believe what I found. I'm like, what'd you find? And he opens up his hands and, and they're old shotgun shells. Now, they're like 100-year-old shotgun shells where like the shotgun part was all rotted away and it was just the, the what do you call it? The, the, the primer, yeah, thank you, the primer. And he goes, check it out. And I'm like, that looks like something I would throw in my dumpster, buddy. I mean, that, there's nothing there. But he was all, all about it. And, and, I, and he goes, these are like 100-year-old shotgun shells, you know, primers. And I'm going, so you found the remnants of somebody that had a six-pack 100 years ago shooting stuff. That gets you excited? Anyway, for me, for, for, some of you are like going, what, what are you talking about? Um, for, for me, for me, when I think about Bethlehem and, and, and Jesus being born in maybe one of these, more, of a, more like a cave where they would keep animals, that's not a far stretch of the imagination for me living here in Bella Vista. Most Bible scholars believe that's exactly how, how it went down because there was no room in the house. So they had to have a, a place where Mary could have some privacy for to stay and have this child. Now I have a question for you. Do you think that as Mary thought about what it would be like to, have a mom, to be a mom one day and what it would be like to give birth to her first child, do you think this is what Mary had in mind? traveling 10 days on a donkey when you're nine months pregnant, going to your husband's hometown where you don't know anybody and there's no place for you to, I mean, there's no hospitals. It's like, and you are literally having your first child where the animals sleep. I don't, I don't think this is what Mary had in mind at all. How could it be? I don't think this is the journey that Mary wanted to take. It's not how she imagined it to be. But here's the truth of the matter as I think about this. We all take unwanted journeys in our life, to be quite honest with you. We could all point to those times in our lives like, this is not how I planned my life. This is not how I expected this whole thing to turn out. I mean, I think that's true of all of us. I think about people right now, um, even our church family, our community, that had to make some tough decisions this year, and they lost their job over that. And they're sitting there at Christmas going, this is not how I thought this was gonna turn out. I think about... Some, some folks right here in our church that are, are battling life-threatening illnesses. And we've got some folks in our church that are in the battle of their lives right now. And they would say, I never saw this coming. This is not the journey I wanted or I would have chosen for myself. This is not how I expected this season of my life to be playing out. I, I've sat with a handful of families, moms and dads who have had to laid their children to rest, and they sit there and go, this is not the order things are supposed to happen in. This is, this, this is not, this is not how I thought this was gonna go. But it's, 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 it's life throws at us these 
these unwanted circumstances. And when I think of Mary, I don't think this is how she saw it going down. And boy, there's things in my life and your life that have gone down certain ways. That's not how I thought my life would go. I've sat with parents who have children or spouses who are dealing with these debilitating drug addictions and they're like, I, I, I don't know what to do. This, this is not how I thought life would go. If you're feeling that way or you have felt that way, I promise you will have those moments. This might be a good reminder. Mary, I think, felt that way too. But at the same time, I think we should be reminded because this is all over the pages of the Bible that in these situations, like this is not how I thought my life would go and this isn't going well. I don't know what's gonna happen. Remember that God walks on these journeys with us too, my friends. You're not walking this thing all by yourself even though it may feel that way at times. God's walking this journey with you too. And I promise you, there is a greater purpose that will come out of all of this. It may not have started well. It may not have started um, the the way that uh, we all dreamt to be. But you know, God can take some really disastrous situations and make something really wonderful out of it. There's a a passage in the Bible that if you've never committed it to memory, I think you should. It was from the Apostle Paul. He's teaching the church. It's Romans 8, 28. He just says, for all things we know this, that God works for the good of those who love him. It's a promise. And do you believe that God will ultimately come through? Do you believe that ultimately God can take disastrous things and make wonderful things out of it? Do you believe that? Even if you never see it this side of heaven, that God is working his master plan and he, and he knows what he's doing. I feel like they're, they're just, some of us just need that reminder as we come into this Christmas season when not all things may be well. Well, while this is all going on with Mary and Joseph, that night um, in, you know, having her baby, there was something happening simultaneously on the same night. Look down at verse eight. You got it still there? And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the house or the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God, saying, glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been, been told." Something you may not realize, I try to point out stuff that may not be obvious right on the surface, but it's true. You may not realize this, but Luke tells us that the shepherds were the very first people on the planet that were invited to come meet the baby Jesus. Shepherds were that. And, and quite honestly, the, when, when the gospels were written, the first century hearers would have read that and that would have been a shocking thing. The king of all kings 
has been born and the very first people that got to meet Jesus were shepherds? I don't know, even today, it's a big deal. I mean, when a baby is born in your family, I mean, there's something to be said that you get to meet that baby before anybody else. And friends, usually it's grandma with elbows out, out of my way, I'm seeing the baby. Is that not true? It's usually grandma's at the front of that line, all right? First one to see the grandbaby. But when Jesus was born, the very people at the very front of that line were shepherds. Now, now let me tell you why I'm, I'm pointing that out, why I think that's a big deal. Because typically back in this time, shepherds were not the people that society looked at and goes, wow, man, let's check with the shepherds, see what they think. They were typically uneducated. It was a job that was, uh, you know, kind of reserved for, for, you know, somebody who didn't have very much means. So uneducated, without a lot of resources. And if you were a landowner and you owned a lot of sheep, you hired poor people to watch them. Since they live among animals, and they live with animals, they feed the animals, they clean up after animals, they take care of animals, I don't think they smelled great. I would imagine that if a shepherd walked into the living room, you'd be like, there's shepherds in here. Um, my son, Neil, started wrestling this year. And let me just tell you, a gymnasium has a distinct odor during a wrestling tournament. Why in the world were the shepherds first to be invited to meet Jesus? Here's something to think about. Shepherds weren't looked highly upon in first century times but how did God refer to himself? God referred to himself as a good shepherd. And he referred to his people as a sheep. Jesus w w was born in a stable and he would become a man one day and he would describe himself, how? As the good shepherd who would lay down his life for his sheep. And because the Lord will describe himself this way, for me anyway, it makes perfect sense for why the shepherds were the very first ones called upon to meet Jesus. It, it, it kind of makes me think about it this way. If you're taking notes, you can write this down if you'd like. This is in the app. But the shepherds were, a, what were they? They were a visual representation of who this baby would become as an adult. That's what I think about the shepherds. They were there, they're the, the visual representation of what Jesus is going to become. He is going to become a shepherd himself. If you can close your eyes and visualize this moment, you probably can. There you have Jesus, he's lying in a manger, he's all swaddled up in his clothes, and you have Mary and Joseph, they're hovering over the manger, just like parents do today, over their children's cribs, and then over their shoulders, you see these smelly, stinky shepherds. It's quite a visual, if you think about it. I believe this is God's way of just reinforcing who he is and who Jesus will become. And it makes sense that the shepherds were there. You, you, you heard my description a couple weeks ago about Nazareth. Hey, what did the disciples say? Can anything good come from Nazareth? Just the location of Mary and Joseph's hometown, the beginnings of the, 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 the birth story of Jesus, tells us something about, about the kind of people and, and, and who Jesus came to read and all of that stuff, which brings me to my second point. It has never been the rich and the famous who were first attracted to Jesus. It was always the needy and the humble who followed after Jesus. 
There's something about the very beginning of Jesus' story here that shouts to the kind of life that he is going to have and who would follow him. Now look at verse 10. What, what, did, what did the angels announce again? The angel said to the shepherds, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This is good news, the angel said. This is good news of great joy for all people. That, my friends, is the description of the birth of Jesus. I don't know about you, I crave some good news, don't you? I, I, I mean, we live in a world where I, I don't think we get enough good news in an average day. You, know, you turn on the news, you open up your news app, or whatever you get your news, and it's just bad news. And let me tell you, there's plenty of bad news to go around these days. Bad news sells, to be quite honest with you. Good news doesn't sell. Good news isn't as interesting as, as, the, as the bad news that happens. But I tell you, we got tons of bad news. And I'll tell you this, I, I, I thrive on good news. I, I don't thrive on, on bad news. We have more access to bad news today than any other time in history. And bad news drives fear, and fear leads to bad things. I crave good news. This angel, when he showed up and announced the birth of Jesus, he didn't say, I bring you bad news today. No, he said, I bring you good news of great joy. And today, this Christmas, Jesus' birth, friends, hear me this, it is still good news of great joy. Still good news of great joy. Why? Because he is the Savior who is the Messiah, the Lord. That's why it is still good news. And it is good news for all people. And you think about what's going on in the Bible. It was good news not just for the Jews, but it was good news for the Gentiles. It wasn't just good news for men. It was good news for women. It wasn't just good news for children. It was good news for older people as well. It wasn't just good news for rich people. It was good news for poor people. It is good news for all people, and it is still good news for us today. It's not just good news for a bunch of poor shepherds. It is good news for a bunch of wealthy wise men that would come later. It is good news for everybody. This child that they saw lying in the manger, he is actually the key to change the whole world. He is the key that will point people to life change in the future. Oh man, this, this, is, this is really good news. And it was all wrapped up in the form of a baby lying in a manger. So it, it makes sense that shepherds would be there to me anyway. Um, you know what else makes sense? And, and maybe you've never thought about it like this before. It really does make sense that Jesus was placed in a manger. If you go back and look at verse 12, what did the angel say to the shepherds? This is gonna be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in clothes lying in a manger. That was the identifier. That's how the shepherds would know they found the right place. Verse 16, they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was what? Lying in a manger. It's like, fellas, we found him. This is the identifier. But I believe it's a sign as well. Most people associate the manger with humility. And I get that and I don't disagree with it. That Jesus' beginnings were humble and he was born in a stable and with, you know, and the Bible doesn't say there's animals, but we usually associate, you know, the nativity says there was animals there, so it must be true. And, um, and so, I'm joking. And most people go, he was born into very humble circumstances, and that's true. But I think the, the manger has broader meaning than that. What is a manger? Do you know what it is? 
In simplest terms, it's a feeding trough. And, and I've got a picture of one behind me of what a typical manger would look like in the, in the time that Jesus was born. They were often carved out of stone. Why would they be carved out of stone? Why would they need to be these big, heavy things? It's because if you've ever seen an animal come to eat, they're a little bit um, excited. And, and they didn't need something that would tip over very easily. And so they had these big, heavy stone mangers. And this is, this is very similar, perhaps, to what Jesus was, was laid in. But you know what's interesting? And if you grew up farming, you know what I'm talking about. I, I did not grow up farming. Everything I learned about animals came from YouTube. And so... But if you've ever farmed, if you've ever raised animals, you know that they learn familiar sounds. And they learn certain times of day. And if somebody goes out to the barn to feed animals and they hear the bag rip open or they hear the scoop of the feed, they come running because they know it's time to eat. That's what a manger represents. It's a feeding trough. It's, it's, it's a sign to all of God's creatures. It's time to eat. But in Bethlehem that night, it was more than a sign to animals and shepherds. That manger, I believe, is a sign to us. And the reason I say that is because Jesus would later say this in John 6, 35. He says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. And whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. I'll tell you, what, what is it that you're really hungering for right now? I can promise you it's probably not gonna be found underneath the Christmas tree. I think most people, this time of year especially, they're, they're looking for significance in their life. Many people are looking for joy. And I would say uh, hope, especially today, hope in the middle of some disparaging situations. I think a lot of people, and maybe right here in our church, they, they hunger to know that we can be forgiven of our sins and start anew after things we regret. I think there's people that hunger for love, um, a kind of love that won't let go of us ever. Um, I think people are looking for a kind of life that will triumph in the end. These kind of things that I'm talking about, what I think people are really looking for this time of year, they don't come under a Christmas tree. But they do come through a baby that was born in a stable, that was laid to sleep in a feeding trough, that was visited by shepherds, because Jesus is the bread of life. And in a sense, we gotta come to this stable to satisfy our deepest desires that are found in our hearts. It's Jesus. I'd encourage you, the next time you see a nativity, and maybe this is when you go home today and you see your nativity at home, I want you to look at the shepherds in that nativity and know that they represent the Lord, that he himself would become a good shepherd. I hope you never look at the nativity again without seeing the shepherds as a representation of what Jesus would become. And I hope that when you see Jesus lying in the manger in the nativity set that you home, I hope that you're reminded of this. When Jesus said, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will, will never go hungry and he who believes in me will never be thirsty. I'll tell you, Christmas is a perfect time.
to just call out to God and say, God, I need you in my life. Lord, I need more than what this season represents in our country. I, I, I don't want things, I need you. And some, some in, even in this room, may just need to get on your knees and say, Lord, I repent of my sins and I wanna start anew. I'm gonna start this new year off in a different way. I'm gonna live for you. Friends, there's no better time to come to the manger and, 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 and take in what Jesus has to offer. I am the bread of life. You eat from me, I'm, you'll never go hungry. I, you believe in me, you'll never be thirsty. What, what is this season really all about? It's really about the coming of the Son of Man who died on the cross for our sins so that we could have new life. What are you hungering for today? We pray for you. Dear Lord, I just thank you as always for your holy word, how it teaches us, how it guides us, how it informs us. And Lord, I thank you that it has done that again just now. And I pray, Lord, for our church family, that, Lord, this Christmas season, we would see you for who you really are, and that, Lord, we would see us for who we really are, and that we are sinners who are in need of a Savior, that we are people, Lord, that have been saved and sanctified because you died on the cross for us, and you conquered death by raising from the dead three days later. Lord, I pray that as we are opening gifts this year and eating the food and singing the songs and being with family and going through all the stuff, Lord, help us to not lose sight of what this is really all about. It's about you. It's about what you've done for the world. So Lord, I pray this Christmas season we come and we adore you like you need to be adored. Lord, we worship you and we'll praise your name forever because this is what it's truly all about. Lord, I pray right here at New Life we would be a group of people that be so committed on fire for you, Lord that others will be drawn. That others will be drawn to you. Lord, we love you. Honor you. And we praise you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.